0: Beautiful humans, welcome back to the Lioness Podcast. I am your host, Aliyah Land. As you might have heard on the last episode, I took a little bit of a break from the podcast at the end of last year. And that is because for the last six months of 2021, I was working on something very near and dear to my heart. I got certified as a pleasure and empowerment coach, which was amazing. I was so excited about doing that. I got certified as a coach, basically, so I would have more tools and resources to share with you this beautiful, amazing community. And as part of that, I have so many exciting things planned for you in the near future in the area of pleasure and empowerment, starting with the brand new group program I'm offering to help you fall deeply in love with your body. I am so, so, so excited about this. It's called Embodied Bad Bitch. What? (laughs) It's a 12-week self-love experience designed to help you feel at home in your body and connect you to your power. So I created this program because I want to see you living big. I want to see you out there getting your dream job. Finding your dream partner, parenting like the best parent who ever parented, <laughs> writing the next great bestseller, wearing that cropped up in the back of your closet, leading the revolution. I don't really care what it is, if it's big or small, but if it's important to you, I want you out there feeling confident enough to do whatever your wild little heart desires. I see so many people, especially female presenting people, who hold themselves back and don't show up fully because they don't feel good in their bodies. The beauty and weight loss industry and social media, don't get me started on my love-hate relationship with social media, has so many of us brainwashed into believing we're not okay, we need to fix ourselves. There's something fundamentally wrong with us and our bodies. And A, that shit is not true. And B, obsessing or worrying about how you look or feeling inadequate keeps you from getting out there and doing big things. And I think the world really needs to see you out there doing the thing, showing up, living life, feeling free, getting after it. So I want to see you tapping into that bad bitch energy and doing whatever the fuck you want with your one precious, beautiful life. So that is why I created this program to help you really step into that power. And that happens when you let go of the shoulds and come home to your body. So I will drop a link for this in the show notes so you can check it out, find out more, get in touch if you have any questions, but we will be starting this spring. It is my dream to see you fall deeply in love with yourself, embodying that bad bitch energy and doing big things. Check it out. I would love to see you in the program. Okay. So back to the podcast, the first few episodes of 2022 Are from a series of author talks I curated in collaboration with the Seattle Public Library. I put together a talk series all about radical self acceptance as activism. As you will hear when you listen to this episode, I'll talk a little bit more about that in detail. I had the incredible opportunity to talk with some amazing authors and activists about their work and their worldview. I learned so, 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 so much. I loved this talk series, it was really fantastic. And I knew I needed to share their wisdom with you. So a quick note, please forgive the audio quality. These were live Zoom events and the audio is not quite as high quality as I'd like, but I hope that you find that the content more than makes up for that. I wanted to start the year off with these inspiring talks in order to really reshape how we approach the concept of new year, new you, and all the attendant bullshit that comes along with that. Like, please do not even get me started on new year, new you. I hate this concept. So I hope that these will serve as a little bit of an antidote to that, like new year, new, you need to change your body. You need to change up all your routines. Like you're not doing it right. You need to get it all together. No, you're perfect exactly as you are. You don't need to change anything. If you want to grow and learn and explore some new ideas, I hope you will find these talks useful. I hope you enjoy these. And if so, I highly recommend you follow them on social media, get on their mailing list, and of course, buy their books. If you do, please, 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 please consider buying from a local independent bookseller. I especially love here in Seattle, Third Place Books and Elliott Bay. Powell's Down in Portland is an amazing bookseller. And then, of course, Bookshop.org, which gives back to local independent booksellers. I will put links to each of these in the show notes as well as each author's work. Okay, enough talking. Let's go ahead and get on into it.
1: Good evening, everybody. I'm Stesha Brandon, the Literature and Humanities Program Manager at the Seattle Public Library. I'm delighted to introduce tonight's speakers. Oliah Land is the founder and editor of Lioness, an online journal and community promoting connection, confidence, sisterhood, and self-love. Dr. Kite is identical twin sisters with Dr. Lexi Kite, and both received PhDs from the University of Utah. Their academic research on media studies and body image inspired them to establish the nonprofit Beauty Redefined in 2009, while concluding their co-written master's thesis and beginning their doctoral research to help a greater number of females recognize and reject harmful messages about their bodies, worth, and potential, and to redefine the meaning and value. Value of beauty in their lives. Lexi and Lindsay have become leading experts in body image resilience and media literacy. Authors of numerous studies and books have cited their original research. Today, they continue to build on their academic work and the passion it stoked for helping girls and women through Beauty Redefine's online body image resilience program. Welcome, Olia Land and Dr. Lindsay Kite. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you, Stasha, for the introduction. Lindsay, I am so excited
0: to speak with you tonight. Thank you so much for having me on this. I discovered you through Instagram. I always have this love-hate relationship with Instagram, but there are like really fantastic things on there. And I, I discovered you kind of on my own journey of like body acceptance and re-examining my relationship with my body. And then I found your book and I love the work that you do. I interviewed your twin sister on the Lioness podcast. So I'm just thrilled to be continuing this conversation tonight. Yeah, happy to do it. Thank you so much. Before we get into our conversation, I would just like to speak briefly about the talk series. I was thrilled when the Seattle Public Library reached out to me and asked me to be a guest curator. I was even more thrilled when they gave me carte blanche to kind of create a series around whatever topic I wanted to talk about. Initially, the title of this was Radical Self-Acceptance for the Post-Pandemic Era. That was in May when I was feeling very optimistic and had just gotten vaccinated. So we're not yet in the post-pandemic era. So I shifted it to radical self-acceptance as activism for several reasons. One is that I think the last 18 months have really shown us that we have a lot of work to do in the sphere of working for social justice and equality. I think that's been made like patently evident. I also think the pandemic has really showed us in a very tangible way how fleeting and precious life is. I also think this shift in work culture and home life culture and parenting and homeschooling has really led people to unprecedented amounts of burnout. I'm just seeing all around me tons and tons of burnout. So my idea for this talk series was really to talk about like what can radical self-acceptance look like and how that can be a tool for working towards this greater social justice and equity in a sustainable way. And then the last thing is how everyone can use radical self-acceptance as a tool for combating burnout, showing up more fully for themselves, their families, their friends, and their communities. And I am thrilled to be talking with you tonight about your book, about your work. So let's get into it. I always like to start by the Hearing about people's stories, more than a body this is the book. It's fantastic. Changed my life. Highly, highly recommend. Could you talk a little bit about your story and how you started Beauty Redefined and wrote this book? Yeah,
2: definitely. For me, it honestly started from a lot of shame, a lot of pain. You can imagine if you really dig into body image work, you've probably come from a place of understanding that on your own personal level. That was definitely true for me and for Lexi. Growing up as identical twins, You can imagine how much comparison we got and still to this day when people meet us side by side and they've never seen us or met us before and they find out we're twins, they immediately will look back and forth. They'll scan your body up and down and then Mm -hmm. they will audibly pick out which things they think are different. Mm -hmm. So it definitely happened more when we were really little, but we were just constantly being compared and contrasted. It led to this extreme awareness of how we appeared at all times. And not only just how we appeared, like a level of self-consciousness that a lot of girls develop from a young age, but also being able to look at each other's bodies and faces. I looked at her as if she was my own reflection, like a mirror. She's turned around. She's wearing her swimsuit. We were competitive swimmers from a really young age. And I remember looking at her and really consciously thinking, oh, so that's what I look like when I'm wearing that from behind or when I'm leaning over or when I'm not aware of how I look.
0: That's like a whole nother level. I mean, it's already like mirror shop windows and mirrors, like as a teenage girl, it's already like challenging, but this is like, you have your own personal, like 360 degree mirror everywhere you go. Exactly. It's the comparison thing, but then
2: it's also the, oh, okay, this is an angle on me that I wasn't even aware of. And so Lexi and I, we start out the book like that, talking about the comparison and the competition that was between us and the obsession really with how we look and losing weight and all of that. But we do that because I think there's a really interesting parallel to be drawn between what identical twins go through and what any normal person goes through as they start to grow up. And live in this objectifying culture that reminds you your body is the most important thing and that looking a certain way is going to be your key to health and happiness and success and confidence and everything else. And then we internalize that same objectified view of ourselves. It's self-objectification. We think of our bodies as objects or projects for fixing, for viewing, for judging. And we turn that lens against ourselves. And so, like, you kind of become your own identical twin. You are split from yourself, imagining yourself from the outside, monitoring yourself all the time as you go throughout your day. And so if you think about, you know, turning against yourself, kind of being your own critical, judgmental, identical twin, that's kind of
0: a good description for what self-objectification is. And that showed up in our research like crazy. I'm glad you brought that up because it's such an important theme in your work. Like the minute you hear that term, you understand what that means, right? But I'd never thought about it like so directly. So I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about this phenomenon of self-objectification, what it is and what it stems from. Self-objectification, it happens primarily to girls and women in our culture or
2: female presenting people because we're sold so many messages from the time we're born really about what makes a woman valuable. And that primarily comes from her appearance and her sexual appeal. And so we're taught in very direct cohesive ways about what it looks like to be that not just beautiful perfect 10 woman, but what it looks like to be a normal acceptable woman. Because all of the images of women that we saw looked one way. They were very uniform and standard. They're thin, they're young, they have curves in all the right places and none of the wrong ones they are primarily white or with light skin tones. And often with really full thick hair, you are never going to see cellulite, scars, veins, you know, all the things that we grow up with thinking are so abnormal.
0: This so resonated with me. I remember being like maybe 14, 15, and I had, you know, like reading fashion magazines, because there was no internet at the time. So I was like very into fashion magazines. And I had this wall, it was like an homage to this like, body type. It was just exactly what you're describing, like thin, petite, like mostly white women. Yeah, because that was what was perceived as normal. Like all
2: the rest of us, which is pretty much every person who was exposed to those messages felt embarrassed and abnormal of our perfectly normal spectrum of appearances. So this creates not only shame, but a fixation on how we look because we believe that looking right will lead to all of the good things in life that we want. And what happens in an objectifying culture is, like I said, self-objectification. It's this split that happens where, so imagine yourself, this is how we start out the book as well. You're on a beach when you're a little kid, try to think back to the days before your self-consciousness, before you had any fear or real awareness of how people were looking at you, how you appeared to other people. And so you can imagine as a little kid being hunched over in the backyard, wearing a swimsuit or just your underwear, or being at the beach, playing in the sand and not having any concerns about your stomach scrunching up and thick sunscreen slathered all over your face. Who cares? You're just playing. You're enjoying the sun, the water, the sand. And as we grow older and as we are immersed further in what we call the waters of objectification, this perfectly normal way of viewing our bodies, We get separated from that whole embodied self on the beach and we drift out into the waters of objectification. We're invited there by the magazines that we saw on the newsstands when we were little. I was just like you, just worshiping these teen magazines, looking at all the girls, they all looked the same way and therefore I knew that I was wrong and would have to look that way if I was gonna be happy or ever have a boyfriend or anything else I really wanted as a a teenager. And that is this split that keeps you separated from yourself. You watch yourself living your life. You imagine how you appear. You try to envision yourself through other people's eyes. Even as you scroll through your own social media timeline or your own feed, you look how someone else might look at you. Like maybe a new person that you're romantically interested in, follows you. And you do that thing where you're like, well, let me just check and see what's he going to be seeing. And you scroll through and you put yourself in the mind of someone else. You are self-objectifying. We are imagining our, our bodies as objects, not as instruments for our use. And so this self-objectification is really the root of the body image problem in our culture. And a lot of people are missing that. They're thinking that, that girls and women just don't feel beautiful. And if they felt beautiful, they'd be fine. But there are a lot of girls and women that do feel beautiful and do get a lot of attention and validation for how they look. And yet they are still obsessed with their bodies, still part of their mental and physical energy is being drained away all day long, trying to maintain that appearance, trying to keep up those levels of validation and attention. They live or die by whether they are beautiful enough or not. And in this culture, we're never going to be beautiful enough for long. You know, it's fleeting because the standard
0: is changing. Yeah, totally in the book you write about this metaphor and you mentioned it about like the sea of self objectification. Like when you're a kid, like you're just at the beach and like you're getting your toes wet a little bit. You hear your mom talking about her body or you see this television character or all the cartoon characters are drawn like very curvaceously and sexually. So there's like little, and then you wait out a little further. And before you know it, you're like way off the shore. <laughs>
2: like yeah, you know. And everyone else, you know, is too. Yeah. They're on diets. They're worried about their appearance. They're talking about your appearance. You're getting that constant reminder that your body is crucial and that it doesn't look quite right. But with all these tools and solutions, then it can, and then you'll be happy and accepted. It's just, it's a lifelong vicious cycle that so many of us are on. And yet we don't get any ultimate satisfaction.
0: I don't know if you, in your research, if you've come across any numbers about this, but like, I'm curious about like how many times a day there are like micro instances of self objectification or micro instances of just like, oh, I should look like this, or I look fat in these jeans or suck your stomach in, or I'm meeting like, it's impossible to evaluate. It's impossible to
2: put a number on because it's something that's so consistent. Most people don't even know it's happening. It's just like we said, like you're swimming in these waters of objectification where it's not like you're living in fear all the time. You're not aware that you're floating in this water it's just normal. It's just how it is. And so we, we absorb it all. And we just think that's the nature of being a woman in this culture. And it's like, all right, well, at least we've got makeup. At least we've got all these different weight loss options and, you know, social media feeds to follow for all the best tips and tricks. But what we need to do is to get uncomfortable with the waters of objectification. We need to have a spotlight shine on our self-objectification so that we're even aware that it's happening. It's not conscious thoughts usually. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's a conscious thought that's like, oh, I can't believe I wore this today because you see your reflection and the glasses you're walking up and then you're embarrassed. But a lot of times it's just simply the constant script running through your mind where you're sitting in a classroom or a boardroom and you are adjusting your thighs so that Mm -hmm. they don't look like they're spreading out across this chair too far. And the person behind you isn't seeing that, you know, you're hunched over in an unflattering way or whatever it is. It's just this constant mind numbing, normal way of thinking about our bodies, but we don't want it to be normal. We want that to be what's uncomfortable.
0: Yeah. I remember the first time that I read your book and then started like looking for it. I was like, Oh shit. This is everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Like everywhere, everywhere. I was like, I can't pass a mirror. I can't. Pass. And I feel like I have a good relationship with my body and like I've done a lot of work to like really value it for what it can do. And I do feel like my body is like miraculous and I'm grateful for all But the And I just pass the window and I just give a quick little, you know, like it's so, yeah. you know, I have 46 years of like doing that. Like it's, it's so pervasive. It is. It feels natural. Yeah. And one of the things that you write about um, self-objectification and this constant monitoring of our bodies that really also I think it's very important to call out is how it saps so much of our confidence and our energy. And that is what's really compelling to me. If we could put a number on the hours per day, per week, per month, per year we spend doing like, I think in the book, you call it beauty work. How much time would we get back? How much energy would we get back? How much higher would our confidence be if we weren't having these little micro dings to our confidence all day long? Well, it puts us at a disadvantage. Like
2: really when you compare yourself to the men and boys in your life and the amount of time and money and energy they put into their appearance compared to what we do, like there's no doubt at all that we are at a disadvantage financially and with our time and energy in so many different ways. And it goes hand in hand with that self-objectification because we're kind of trying to build our confidence and to escape the shame by doing all of this beauty work in so many ways to feel better for the moment. And ultimately, it's just not a lasting solution at all. It just leads to more and more upkeep. We kind of raise the bar on ourselves to be able to feel like ourselves and to feel comfortable and normal, then we've got to do this
0: extra work and buy these extra things and maintain all of it. It's a losing game. Well, speaking of the bar, I feel like the beauty industry is constantly like inventing like new th- like, oh things, like things you couldn't even imagine, like because they just have to keep like infinite growth, right? So like let's invent some new thing for people to be concerned about. And another thing about that that I think is really compelling is it also puts all of the sources of validation and approval outside of ourselves. And I think that that carries over into other areas of your life. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it starts showing up at really young
2: ages too. One of the like darkest parts of digging into this stuff with people is that you find out how early it started to really negatively affect them without yeah. them even really calling it that. They, they blamed themselves. They didn't blame the standards that they're inadvertently holding themselves to and then self-objectifying all day long. So you hear about girls who stop raising their hands in class Mm -hmm. because they don't want to be looked at. Their faces get red. They're not wearing the right outfit. You know, you can imagine all the things you're self-conscious of in sixth grade going through puberty. You don't want to be seen like we all can relate to that. So girls stop raising their hands in class. They stop going out for leadership opportunities. They stop playing sports or participating in P.E., that has ripple effects that last the rest of your
0: life. PE was so traumatic from, I remember oh, my, i yeah. still feel traumatized thinking about my junior high <laughs> school PE class. Like, because I felt like we had, we had a uniform. And I was like, these shorts are too short and this t-shirt's too tight. And like, are my fat rolls showing? And like, yeah. Yes.
2: Most of us can relate to that. I haven't it's thought like, about that in a long time. I know. That's why I say it's dark. Like it brings up these things where you remember how much you loved playing volleyball or being in dance or whatever it is when you're young. And by the time you're, 14, 15, 16 years old, girls are quitting these activities because they don't look right in the uniform because they don't quite fit the body ideals. And that stuff lasts the rest of your life because once you learn that it's easier to sit out or opt out of something, it's easier to hide your body and then try to fix it. Then you still don't go up for career opportunities that you want to be involved in or that are really male dominated. And oftentimes for really valid reasons because there is prejudice, there is bias, there is harassment, And we kind of accept it as normal because if our bodies are the most important thing about us and we want to be appealing, then we just accept these things as okay and feel that they're deserved instead of that they're a product of a really unhealthy, ridiculous environment.
0: The, the way girls stop raising their hand and stop showing up and stop going for leadership positions is what makes this in my mind, like part of why this radical self-acceptance is activism, yes. because that shit has to stop. Yes, <laughs> like, it does. We need girls feeling powerful. We need feel, girls feeling like they can show up. We need girls like taking yes. leadership roles. It's so important. And, you know, when they see
2: other girls who look like them or who, don't fit the ideals or breaking the mold in other ways, and they see other girls raising their hand or staying on the volleyball team or whatever, that is radical self-acceptance as activism. They are seeing activism in motion, even if it doesn't feel like that for the person doing it. She may just be living her life. Totally, especially for teenagers. Yeah. They need Um, it more than anything. They don't want to feel abnormal and left out, you know? Totally. It, It lasts all the way through adulthood. We need
0: to see other people doing things that we're not sure we qualify to do. Yes. And there's a term that you you have in your book that I just want to call out because I was like, oh, that is so it. You talk about normative discontent, which is this idea that most of us feel bad about our bodies. Most of the time, that's just part of the female experience is just, oh, I'm constantly fixing these things or something wrong with me. And just hearing a term for that really called out to me, like how pervasive it is and how, how normative it is
2: that we are uncomfortable in our bodies all the time. We bond over those things. You know, we bond over how you know, I feel fat. I feel ugly. Look at me today, whatever. And our whole lives, you hear women saying things like that to each other. Listen in a dressing room while you're trying on clothes at like TJ Maxx or whatever. Yes. You're going to hear other women saying terrible things about their bodies and other women kind of joining in or saying, like, oh, whatever, you're skinny. Are you kidding me? Look at me. Yes. It's just a part of our culture that's so baked in. That's why I say I don't want that stuff to be comfortable anymore. I want that to be the uncomfortable part. We shouldn't be forcing ourselves to, Fit into these molds that are unachievable and take
0: so much money and effort if we are even going to get anywhere close to them. So once we kind of understand what self-objectification is, you talk about many women having instances of body image disruption which if as I understand it, are like experiences that push us out of our body image, comfort zone, aging, injury, pregnancy, or even just like trying a ton of diets and realizing that they don't work or, yeah. or um,
2: seeing a photo of yourself you don't like. Yeah. No, everyone
0: hates that. Yes. I like that you call out that these experiences are not necessarily bad. And in fact, actually are like part can be part of the growth process. And you talk about kind of three paths that people take to cope. So one path that we can go to is like sinking into shame. Yeah. So these disruptions
2: that we go through, they force us out of our normative discontent comfort zone and in our comfort zone. So the imagery that I like to use is think of the waters of objectification, the sea of objectification we discussed, your comfort zone is kind of a flimsy life raft. So you're floating out there. You're all right. You don't really know it any other way. And then a wave comes along. This is a wave of body image disruption that knocks you out of your life raft and you have to respond. So the very nature of this objectifying environment that we were that we are in right now means that you will face disruptions to your body image. And they might be those little things like being tagged in a photo or a video that you really hate of yourself. Or it could be a huge thing like, injury and illness, chronic illness, disability, things that change your relationship with your body in some really significant way. And when we're faced with those disruptions, we get knocked out and we have to respond. We will always respond in one way or another. And one of the worst ways is sinking deeper into shame. We will do anything to cope with the shame, to numb ourselves, to distract ourselves. And when you're in this category, you're sinking deeper into shame it doesn't help you, but it might numb you or distract you for a moment. So think like disordered eating. This is also self-harm. Cutting is a huge one that comes up, especially for young women. Alcohol abuse, substance use disorders of all types would fit into this category. Unhealthy sexual behavior definitely falls into this category. We hurt ourselves and numb ourselves in an attempt to deal with the shame that we feel about our bodies or about anything else. Once again, it doesn't make us feel any better afterward. It just distracts us for a moment. The second path that people take is going to be familiar to probably everybody listening because we all do this. It's very natural. We learn to hide our bodies or fix our bodies. Mm -hmm. So think of this like in psychology, they would talk about it as you go through a disruption of some sort and you'd go into fight or flight. Mm -hmm. So you're doing whatever it takes to get out of that situation that's making you uncomfortable. In the body image world, we call it hide and fix instead of fight or flight Because with hiding, you are opting out of events, activities, situations where you don't want to be seen. It could be social activities. It could be, you know, like dating in general, pursuing relationships in general. It could be um, physical activities, even like going to the gym or like things you want to do, but you just don't do because Mm -hmm. you don't think you look quite right yet. Even leadership opportunities and campaigning for things, women avoid that. They don't want to be criticized and judged and looked at. And then on the other side of that is fixing. And sometimes we do both of these at the same time. I know for me, when I was facing body image disruptions for a long time in my teenage years, especially around swimming, being invited to go swimming was always a big disruption to my body image. And so I would respond to that disruption every time by hiding and fixing. I would hide by saying like, oh, I can't go today, but invite me next time, okay? I would try to fix my body so I could qualify to go swimming next time by going and running on the treadmill for way too long and cutting out food groups for weeks on end and trying every crash diet in the world, which like you, I have done them all. None of that, like even if I did lose a whole bunch of weight or, or change my wardrobe or my makeup or whatever, none of that brought any lasting relief. It is hiding and fixing. It keeps you in that uncomfortable, unsafe comfort zone. And it doesn't fix the problem at all. And yet we're all doing that. And it leaves us on this cycle of self-objectifying and getting uncomfortable and the shame comes up, we're disrupted and then we go on a liquid crash diet or we get liposuction or we change our wardrobe or we just hide.
0: And then we're back to the self-objectifying. And it really is a cycle, at least in my experience, like yeah. it, it's that endless like diet. So I can't tell you how many diets I started after seeing an unflattering picture or some kind of di- disruption like that being like, oh, sh- I can't deal with it. Like okay, I'm tomorrow, X, Y, Z. Or and I, I think that also like the more you do that, the more easily you're disrupted. I'm like killing myself over here sometimes yep. literally to get into this body shape or size or whatever. And then you still see it but, and you're like, oh, that wasn't enough. So I have to double down even more. And I think you get you get kind of sunk cost bias. I think like, you're totally right. Mm -hmm. invested in this. And so you just double down even more. And so it's really, truly insidious and awful. It is. Yeah, you're totally right. It's that discouragement
2: that amplifies it all where you're, you're investing so heavily in making sure your body looks a certain way because you have been promised by everyone and everything in your life that looking better will make your life better. And when your life isn't better, and when you do see that, now your skin is saggier and you look older and whatever else happens when you lose weight because that's the goal for so many people. And it doesn't really fix your problems. That discouragement is magnified. Disrupt like- it
0: again. Cause it's yeah. so much work and it like takes all of your focus. And you were also talking about hiding and I can think of like all the times dieting that I like said no to like social engagements because like that didn't fit my macros or that didn't yeah. fit my calories or whatever. And I think back on that now, it just makes me so, it makes me sad for my past. Yeah. Self. Me too.
2: Uh, some people don't date because they aren't able to stay on their diet. If they have to meet at a bar to get drinks or, you know, eat bar food or whatever it is. And yeah. so they'd rather be alone and, We think that we're trying to reach these goals that are healthy and they'll make our lives better when in reality, they just isolate us and they keep us on these totally losing cycles where we're back in that self-objectifying, uncomfortable comfort zone forever. We ultimately do not win in this cycle.
0: Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. Call it out. Like get on the rooftops, scream it. (laughs) Yes, please. I try. (laughs) Um, Okay. And then the third response that that you talk about in your book um, in reaction to these disruptions is body image resilience.
2: So the origin of this body image resilience idea came because in our dissertation research, we found that it was easy to explain why women self-objectified and what kept them in that cycle. It was easy to predict it, like I described, is a cycle where you go from bad to trying to fix it, to not really fixing it, back to bad again. And that was this self-objectification cycle. You could predict it, you could explain it, but there wasn't a way out of it. And so there's this gap in the research. That left an opening to say, okay, we know that in this objectifying environment, people are uncomfortable with their bodies, they're going to get disrupted, and they're going to take one of these two paths that are keeping them on this uncomfortable cycle. There's got to be a better way. And the way out is a resilience approach. The way out is to say, okay, to incorporate these disruptions into a model, a theoretical model that says disruptions are going to happen. How do we use them for our benefit? That turns a disruption into a pivot point. It turns it into an opportunity where if you consciously approach a disruption, you recognize when it's happening and what kinds of feelings that stirs up for you that make you self-objectify, that make you want to hide and fix and sink deeper into shame. When you recognize in the moment that that is happening, you immediately have an opportunity to change your reaction. And the change leads to rising with resilience instead of sinking into shame and clinging to the comfort zone. You drop that shame and you consciously make a choice. To say, okay, I'm going to try a new way. The other ways haven't really been working for me. And even though it feels natural and comfortable to go back on that cycle again, it doesn't ultimately fix me or make my life any better. And so you make some sacrifices. You don't turn toward the dieting. You turn back to your body as your home. And so our whole book is about how to find your own resources for resilience. And so we talk about it as not only a skill set that you use in the moment, to work through a disruption in a healthy and empowering way. You use your resilience resources in that moment that you're uncomfortable, but it's also like this muscle that you flex that every time you face a disruption and you choose to do so in a different, more empowering way, it gets easier every single time. And so you build your body image resilience over time. And that's a whole different framework than the other ones that you brought up, like body positivity and body neutrality and body acceptance all amazing things, and honestly, all of them a stepping stone to a better thing. Body positivity was really a a reaction and an important and necessary reaction to an environment that said some bodies are good and some bodies are bad. Some bodies are embarrassing and shouldn't be seen and haven't been seen in mainstream media. And so the reaction online, especially through social media, was for women to say, well, my body is beautiful and I'm going to show you that and I'm going to highlight these other bodies that I believe are sexy and beautiful and look great and that will help normalize these bodies that come in a wide range of sizes and shapes and colors and everything else. All of that is good. Normalizing all different types of bodies is a really important step in the process. But when you look at it from our research perspective, where we're really looking at objectification, Mm -hmm. you can see that in that framework, self-objectification is still at the foundation. It's still women looking at bodies and thinking, does my body look like that? Does my body look good? If she looks good, then maybe I look good too. And we're still keeping that focus on how we look. Unfortunately, it recenters beauty, even while it's expanding the definition of it, it's still kind of recentering the importance of feeling beautiful, of looking beautiful. And so then it's necessary to take another step. And the next step was body neutrality and body acceptance to say, that my body doesn't isn't just good for what it looks like. It, it doesn't even necessarily need to be beautiful for me to be acceptable and happy and worthy of love. And it kind of shifted the focus more toward function over form which can be a good thing and can be a really tricky, difficult thing, especially for people who have disabilities, who are chronically ill or have injuries. Your body isn't as good as how it functions. Your body is good because it's your body and you were born into this body. And so the framework shift that we've taken is to say body image resilience is not a like a landing point you get to. It is a continuous process, a choice that you make to face a disruption where you are uncomfortable, where you are objectified or objectifying yourself through self-objectification. And you make the choice to say, my body is an instrument for my use, my experience, my benefit. I am more than just how my body appears. And I will face this disruption right now in a way that honors that and helps me reconnect with myself instead of turning against myself.
0: Yes, I love that. And I'm gonna play devil's advocate a little bit, but this ties into something that I wanted to speak to you about, which was race, ethnicity, and body image. I was speaking with a friend of mine about this, about the difference kind of between body neutrality, body love, body acceptance, body resilience. And for me personally, as a person of color, it has actually felt very important to claim that space to be like, so yeah. I'm like not thin, I'm over 40, I'm black. I'm like all these things where the, you know, mainstream beauty standards are like, get out of here. Like, we don't want to hear from you. you know? yeah. <laughs> and for me, it's felt very important to be like, no, I, I am beautiful. And I am taking yeah. space and I give that to myself and not like even compared to you or you or you or anyone else. Like I am just declaring this for myself. Yeah. And so I do feel like when I hear people talk about body neutrality or, even body image resilience, which I obviously am on board with and think is very important. I do feel a little space in there as a person of color of like, I want space to stand in this, to say that like, no, like if you can be trans, you can be a person of color, you can be disabled, you can be whatever, and still take up space, be beautiful, proclaim like beautiful inside and out. Like where does that fit in with, with the model?
2: I totally honor that. I think there's definitely room for all that you've described in the body image resilience model and in all of my beliefs about this body image stuff. Because we grow up in this culture that only values certain bodies and faces as beautiful, it is important for some people to be able to say, but I believe I am beautiful and I'm good enough as I am. That is an important part of it. And that's why I say it's a stepping stone. I don't necessarily think it's a stepping stone for everybody, but I do think for women of color for people who are trans whose gender identity doesn't necessarily, hasn't reflected what they've wanted it to their entire lives. There's this important pivot point where you do have to accept yourself and say, I honor my whole body, not just as an instrument, but for all facets of it. And one of the facets of having a body is having a body that is visible to other people. Like we appear and other people are going to perceive our bodies differently than even we perceive them. So what the point that you've made, I think, is very important where it's you making that claim, that declaration of value and beauty for yourself. You're not waiting for other people to say my body looks good. So my body looks good, too. It's not a comparison thing. It's like it's an innate thing. It's something you've taken for yourself. And I think we all should do that. Because you're creating your own definition of what it means to be beautiful. You're not saying I've expanded the definition far enough that I can finally fit in it. You're saying it doesn't matter what the definition is. I choose it for myself.
0: Yeah, I guess that's a good point. And if somebody, maybe it's because like I have an art history background or whatever, like I am very interested Mm. in beauty as a concept. So sometimes I feel a little bit uncomfortable about this. Sometimes I feel like people have this idea that beauty should just be jettisoned. Mm, Yeah. So I always like to hear people's opinion on
2: that. No, I think that's a really important part of the conversation because I like beauty too. I'm into aesthetics. I like bright colors. I like beautiful prints and patterns. Everyone is drawn to different aesthetics. And I think it's really important to honor that and value that and recognize that when we are looking at our own bodies and faces, we're all going to have different preferences for what that is. And if we can choose whatever type of beauty we want for ourselves and claim that for ourselves, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing our nonprofit is named Beauty Redefined. Beauty has been an essential part of this whole conversation because that's where it started. It's always been about what was beautiful, who was beautiful, whether we can redefine it and expand it in ways that will fit more people. And ultimately, how do we value it and hold it of a different level of importance in our lives? You know, for too many of us, it's held way too much importance.
0: Yeah, and I guess for me the concept is more—it's like akin to self-worth. Like I think everybody is deserving of love and care and respect simply for existing, not because yeah. of what your productivity, not because of what you look like, not because of the color of your skin. And I see beauty somewhat similarly. Like we're all beautiful in yeah. inner beauty, outer beauty. So I want everyone
2: to feel beautiful. I really do. A lot of people approach this subject by saying all bodies are beautiful. You're beautiful just the way you are. And the reason that Lexi and I have tried to take that conversation further to the more than a body place is because too often the conversation stops there and it is this really good starting point. But when you leave it there, it's tricky because you can still find your worth in this beauty thing. And the beauty thing is what gets manipulated by our culture. And so if you don't have a really firm grasp for yourself as a grown adult woman, then it's easy for that to get
0: co-opted. You have a chapter in the book about critiquing and creating your media environment. There are some things in here that just blew my mind. Sometimes it just feels like a tsunami of forces that it's useless to resist kind of. But I love that you call it in your book, how cohesive this messaging is and how it's all in the service of profit. I think you talked about a $63 billion beauty industry. I know it's like a $73 billion diet in the fitness industry Mm -hmm. aimed primarily at women. And I would love to read a little quote here, if you don't mind. In order to see the power these objectifying messages have in our lives, it's vital to understand the profit-driven nature of media, including social media. Media makers, advertisers, and beauty, fashion, fitness, and diet industry leaders know a secret many as a, many of us have not yet figured out. The purchasing power of women is unrivaled. Women control more than $20 trillion in worldwide spending, and 75% of women are the primary spenders in their household. And so when you are hit with numbers like that, for me like this idea of how cohesive it is and you write about how the beauty industry puts out this cohesive message of making you feel bad you have all these flaws flaws are constantly being invented like there's always something new to work on this constantly ever expanding notion of always something to work on and how truly profit driven it is and when i hear that it just makes me like enraged (laughs) It makes me so angry, but I think it's so important to call out the root of a lot of this messaging, because I think people have the sense, or I've had the sense in the past that it's kind of like just incidental and that's just, but like, no, this is big business. Oh
2: yeah. 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 I think it's so important to recognize that women are targeted for lots of different reasons. And one of the really big ones is for our spending power. When we control the dollars in our households and when we do have Extra spending money, or at least, you know, are flexible with our budgets. And even when we're not, we still spend money on makeup. It's so interesting. Like, even during the pandemic, people lost their jobs, incomes were fluctuating all over the place. Botox and lipstick sales still skyrocketed. Wow. So people are still turning to beauty work and beauty products to try to control their happiness level.
0: Well, and I can imagine, like, this was like a global moment of like being confronted with ourselves, like with the rise of zoom, like we're all on online calls, like, like we never have been. So you have to like look at your own freaking face, like all day day on your calls. So I imagine that that contributes to the self self objectifying. Yes, it definitely has. And plastic surgeons say that too. They said they've
2: seen a huge rise in zoom surgery or something like that. It's, it's a direct result of people seeing their faces on zoom
0: Mm -hmm. and
2: then wanting it to look more like the filters in their social media. Oh, put your face through a filter in a Instagram story, and all of a sudden you think your face needs to look like that. We could spend a whole
0: hour just talking about filters, and
2: (laughs) yeah, we could. They are doing some damage. They are not just creating ideals, but they're like replicating ideals that have been there forever, and then making it look attainable for your own face, and then normalizing it. Well yeah, and then when you start to use a lot of filters and then you see
0: your own face, you're
2: like, oh, that's not right. Like Yeah, I'm... exactly. Exactly. Like, wait, my face has texture and my eyes are smaller than I
0: thought. Like, what? Yes. <laughs> what is this? I don't have like a giant forehead and a teeny tiny little <laughs> nose. Yes. Exactly. I'm not just eyes and lips. What? <laughs> I always like to keep these talks like practical as well as theoretical. What are some things we yeah. can do for, for making our media environment more healthy? Yeah, that's a really good question because a lot of us really like media. I do.
2: I love Reality TV trash. I love the real housewives. You know, all of these things that just totally reinforce unhealthy, unrealistic ideals about faces and bodies. I still like to enjoy those things and it's possible to still enjoy them while maintaining a really critical perspective on them. And I think that's really the key is being able to take a critical look. Honestly, one of the first things I recommend for people is as they're watching TV or scrolling through social media, they need to stay mindful and conscious of what you're feeling and thinking. When does your self-objectification get sparked? When does that body anxiety come up for you? What are you looking at? What types of things are you seeing? Are you self-comparing in those moments? Are there certain people that you follow or certain shows that trigger that in you more than others? Sometimes we'll dive into those even deeper when those uncomfortable feelings come come up because we just, we think it's just curiosity and we'll just keep scrolling through our ex-boyfriends, new girlfriends feed because it's all right. I'm just interested when really what we're doing is self-comparing and like in some ways self-harming, it's really hurting our self-worth. And so as you're engaging in all this media stuff, be conscious of how it's making you feel and take a moment as those feelings come up to see what's happening, take a deep breath, and maybe unfollow or close that app or delete the app for three days and see how much you need it when you come back. Really this media cleanse thing, we call it an intermittent media cleanse because, you know, put it in trendy diet terms that people can relate to. It really will resensitize you to what kinds of things are manipulating your perspective of your own body and reinforcing a lot of that self-objectification. Then when you come back to it, You have an opportunity to be more conscious, more critical of what you're seeing, and then you can curate that social media feed and what you're taking into your life more easily than you could when you're just fully immersed in it all day long. I always ask people to take inventory of the types of bodies and faces that they're seeing on a regular basis, whether it's in your feed or the types of entertainment that you watch and stream. If they all tend to look the same and fit into certain sizes, you gotta expand that. And with social media, it's entirely possible expand what we're seeing and normalize it for ourselves because there is this unconscious subtle judgment that is really baked into us a very fat phobic
0: culture social media gets a lot of criticism for good reason right but also like i think if you're mindful with it it can also really be a tool for like broadening your oh yeah your world perspective and how you feel about yourself just with that that added intention One of the powerful tools for helping develop body image resilience, a healthier, more compassionate relationship with your body is self-compassion.
2: Yeah. In both my work and personal life, self-compassion is absolutely crucial. Kristen Neff is really the pioneer of this space. Her book on self-compassion is absolutely incredible. She has a workbook too. Self-compassion is this piece of the puzzle that helps to alleviate some of the shame we feel just for being human because it brings back our own humanity. And I think it's a really important piece of the puzzle, especially when we're talking about self-comparison, because we dehumanize ourselves when we are comparing ourselves to other people, but we also dehumanize the other people that we're looking at. We turn ourselves and them into objects to be looked at and compared and judged. And when you put back the self-compassion into it, you say to yourself, I'm a human, I have flaws, I make good choices and bad choices. I can hold that pain that I feel in balance with all of the good things that I feel and the happiness I experience. And you can look at that other person that you may be tempted to judge or compare yourself to. And you can say out loud or just in your mind, she is a person, she is a human, she has flaws, she is struggling with things, she has happiness and joy, and she is in the same objectifying environment that I'm in. And when you extend compassion to other people to allow them to make choices that are different, maybe from choices that you would make, Then it takes you out of competition with them, and it puts you back into this mindset of we're all doing our best, and it's difficult to live in this environment that we live in. The waters of objectification are not a fun place to be, so we have to extend that grace not only to ourselves, but also to other people.
0: Yes, so powerful. I love that. I love that. And I wish that to everyone on everyone listening, on everyone, like anyone who's been impacted by this, like negative body image is just to come home to yourself. Like I think it's so powerful. It's so healing. It's so important, which is why I'm so grateful that we have resources like this, that we have people like you and Lexi doing the work that you do. I think it is truly transformative. I think it is really, really important. So I just want to thank you for doing everything that you do. It's very meaningful. It's been personally very like impactful to me. I hope that it just like grows and grows and more people like understand that it is possible to like heal your relationship with your body and come back to yourself. So thank you.
2: I appreciate that so much. Thank you so much, Aliyah, and for hosting this. Your words really mean a lot. So I appreciate you being an advocate, being fully embodied in your own body as your home. That's activism too.
0: Well, thank you. Love it. (laughs) Before we go, tell everyone where they can find you online. Yeah. So the book More Than a Body
2: is available anywhere books are sold. It's in hardcover. The paperback will be coming out at the end of the year. So we're on Instagram at beauty underscore redefined. Our website is more
0: than a Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Lioness podcast. The goal of this podcast is to promote community, confidence, connection, and radical self-acceptance. You can check us out at wearelioness.com. For more of that goodness, I will be putting a link in the show notes. To find out about upcoming workshops and retreats and to download your free intention setting guide for 2022, head to the link in our show notes and get on our mailing list. I have all kinds of free goodies coming your way and that is the best way to find out about them. This show is hosted and produced by me, Olaya Land. It's edited by Abigail Circatella. The show music is Coffee Break by Perosian. If you're feeling the show, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, so you can find out when we drop a new episode. If you're down to show us some extra love, please take a minute to rate, review, and/or share on social media, or even just share with a friend. Whatever feels good to you. I am always so 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 grateful for your support, and this is truly the best way to get our message out to more folks. I will be back with another episode soon. Until then, have a great week, and remember that you are perfect exactly as you are.